I just discovered late last week how to move an icon from one place on your phone to another place. So, so I actually now have a calendar where I can find it. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't help because I do not have a, a resurrection message. I never follow the calendar with regard to that sort of thing. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord every Lord's Day. Yeah, as we gather to remember the Lord, wow, that's uh, always... <clears throat> if it's not part of the theme of our discussion and, and, uh, and remembrance... It is definitely uh, on our hearts as soon as we are uh, ready to uh, sing a closing hymn and, and uh, move forward into a wake, alive in Christ, alive to God, forgiven of our sins, alive from the dead. We are people uh, that have a purpose and have a, we have a God who loves us and we can serve him. And it's a glorious thing. <clears throat> but if you want to turn on your Bibles for this morning's, I, and again, this was a tough week. Uh, this has been a, a tough several weeks. Um, maybe the very message that I uh, have in here was what I needed. It would have been better for me to have had it before so I could have. Anyway, Numbers chapter 21 and starting at verse 9, we're going to read verse 9 as our kind of an opening thought here. <clears throat> Numbers 21 and verse 9. Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And of course, we were... Here, last time when I spoke, we, we did get this far, but I couldn't help but bring this up again. It's an amazing picture of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where, where our Lord was crucified for us. And uh, how, how do we know that this picture is that? Of course, uh, the Lord himself interpreted it. He, wanted, he, he, he interpreted it to Nicodemus as he was speaking to Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth. He must be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how can that be? How can, how can a person be born a second time? And, and the Lord explained to him that it had to do with <clears throat> the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he died for us. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him, snake bitten though he be, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life, said the Lord Jesus. We pass from death unto life through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this wonderful picture, this truth that brought the uh, <clears throat> brought before the children of Israel, and they, looking upon that serpent on the brow, on the pole, were healed. They lived. They did not perish. But they lived. And the intention then, of course, is to go into the land 
And so verse 10 says, The children of Israel set forward, and they pitched in Oboth, and it gives a little record of their travel here. But that's an interesting phrase right there. They set forward. That's the first time you read about, we read words like that for at least 38 years. For 38 years, the children of Israel have not had any particular place to go. They were wanderers in the wilderness, marching around to experience the seriousness of their lack of faith and their infidelity toward God. And so as that older generation died one after another, and sometimes by groups, they died there in the wilderness. Their carcasses were buried in the wilderness sands. The people of Israel wandered all those years. But now, now, after this event, they have a purpose now. The 38 years have come to a close and they set forward. They're going somewhere. They've got a goal. They are living. They're alive. They did not die under the serpents or under anything. You know, the long, the long 38 years in the wilderness and they did not die. And they are alive now. They have a purpose and a goal. You know, it's important to have purpose and meaning to life. If you have no purpose in life, you're, you just don't even, you have no sense of being alive. And many people that lose their purpose <clears throat> and become lost in their, they, uh, it's a, it's a state of real misery and sadness. And sometimes they lose all hope. But these people, having seen that serpent on the pole, God's judgment of their sin, and that put away, they have a purpose. They are alive, alive to God. And notice in verse 11, when they started their journey, it says they marched uh, toward the sunrising. Not only do they have a goal in mind, but they have a hope. <laughs> they got a newborn hope. The sun rising speaks of that. They're not, they're not just marching off into the sunset, like the old, the old saying, you know, ride off into the sunset. You know, you kind of, you could go away. <laughs> no, they're not, they're not marching off into the sunset. They're not, they're not marching around in the blackness of darkness forever. No, they're moving toward the daylight, toward the sun rising, a new day, a day without clouds. The long night is over, and the glory is dawning. We, we can't help usually to sing as we, often we sing of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus in that light, in that sense, the, the sun is about to rise. The new day is about to begin. We are facing the dawn of a, of a new and glorious day, the sun rising. They were moving toward the sun rising. Hope has sprung up in their hearts. And they have a real confidence, a new confidence in verse 14 and 15. <clears throat> they recognize that their battles 
are the wars of the Lord, the wars of Jehovah. Verse 14 says, wherefore it is said in the book of, and this is a difficult passage to, to uh, translate, uh, the book of the wars of the Lord, maybe it's a book of the wars of the Lord, maybe it's the book, it's written in the book. And then the, what is written in the book starts with, the wars of the Lord, the wars of the Lord, or what he did in the Red Sea, in the brooks of Arnon, at the stream of the brooks that goeth down toward the dwelling of Ar, lieth upon the border of Moab. An interesting little quotation from the book. But the gist of the thing is that this is the wars of the Lord. And what struck me about this, as I thought about it, it begins, the opening thought is, what he did in the Red Sea. That was the wars of the Lord. Jehovah began his wars for his people as he opened the Red Sea and conquered Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hosts and armies that were hot on pursuit. And after that event, of course, they didn't see the enemy, the Egyptian enemy, anymore, except floating along the seashore, dead bodies. And that was a marvelous deliverance as the Lord fought for his people. In fact, it was there, uh, I believe it wasn't it there, when Moses... As he stretched out his rod over the Red Sea, he said, Stand still and see the salvation of our God. Isn't that what he said? They didn't enter into that battle. It was the war of the Lord. It was the Lord fighting for them. He began those great wars at that Red Sea where he opened up the water. And it was deep. It was a wall of water on both sides of them, the right hand and left hand. A wall, not a fence. Not water this deep. The water that was deep, evidently, a wall on each side of them as they marched through this passageway that God miraculously opened up for them and made a dry path for them through the sea. Then as this little poem or this little, whatever it is, little poem or quotation goes on, what he did there in the Red Sea, the great almighty hand of God delivering his people, The deep waters of the Red Sea were opened up for his people. What do you think is going to be a, do you think the brooks, the wadis of the wilderness are going to be a problem? And we face all kinds of things to cross, all sorts of difficulties crossing the wilderness. There's, there's torrents of different sizes that we have to cross as we march through the wilderness. We have battle of every size and shape of every level of intensity, the battles that we face as we march through the wilderness, but they are the wars of Jehovah. He fights for us. That, to me, is encouraging, hugely encouraging. Every conflict, every difficulty that we face, and some are, Real is significant. Some are not so. You know, they're a little smaller. But every conflict is important. And 
every conflict, in every conflict, in every, as we cross every little stream, every brook, all the way through, with Moab all around. It's the wars of Jehovah. He fights the battles. He'll bring us to the end. That's what brought me to that thought of the verse in uh, Philippians 1, 6. He that hath, we have confidence in this very thing that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so a young person, as you have crossed the Red Sea, trusting Christ for deliverance from Pharaoh's bondage and enslavement to sin, and found freedom and sang the song of the redeemed on the on the banks of the on the far banks of the Red Sea on the wilderness side, alive now to God and in the wilderness with God. God is in the midst of His people. He brought them out of Egypt unto Himself, and there you are, and you've found a relationship with the living God like you've never known before. Well, as you march along, difficulties begin to surprise you sometimes, or they try to. Uh, waylay you once again and you find that there is difficult, there's battles to be fought there's the Red Sea wasn't the only water course to cross it's the battles of Jehovah, he that has begun that good work, he has committed himself to bring you in I wish I would have written down that text but The Lord had promised he had committed himself to bring these people in, and he would do it. And I just, there's still sometimes puddles, sometimes it seems flooding torrents that we have to cross at old age from I speak as a well-seasoned geezer. <laughs> that there's still battles. Then there's some of the enemies that I'm too familiar with. I even know some of their tactics that they will use against me and have used successfully as time as, as I've gone along. You know, I've, I've seen it happen. I've watched them. And they continue to use those tactics, and sometimes even successfully still. Oh, what an encouragement it is to me to know. That these are the wars that Jehovah has committed himself to fight on my behalf. He has committed himself to fight on my behalf. I think that's that's really encouraging. And so those those beautiful texts that we'd considered out of Romans chapter six and different places. I mean, there's there's so many in the new, in the, the epistles here as I think about them. <clears throat> that we are freed from sin, the dominion of sin. 
I thought about this a fair bit because I've recently been talking about ordinances of the church in the different places where I've been uh, traveling when I've been away from here. And one of those, of course, being baptism, and that, of course, is, is an important uh, Romans 6 is an important text concerning baptism. And I thought about the uh, how is it that we are freed from sin in that text? It says we are freed from sin. I think I think it's like I don't know how many times, seven times. He delineates that we have been freed from sin, and yet I have often, in my course of life, struggled with those texts because I don't sense a freedom from sin. Now, <clears throat> sin still has its awful way with me sometimes, and so. How are we free from sin? That's what I. And the, there's a uh, Romans six and verse fourteen. Maybe you remember the text in particular. Sin shall not have dominion over you, says the apostle. Huh. That's that's nice to say. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. How does that make a difference as far as sin's domination over me? This is not in my notes, dear. I'm just I'm wandering. How does that make a difference? If we are... Not under the law. Does that say then that the people that were under the law, sin was in dominion over them? And as I thought about that, I got to thinking, you know, there's some people in the, some of the Old Testament saints that were truly godly, pious, devout, Men and women whose lives, if you if you stood them up, I would not want to have to be compared next to them. They exceed me in holiness. <laughs> Think about them. Think of Daniel. Match your prayer life with Daniel. Match your devotion with some of those mighty men of David that would give their life, they would give their absolute life in devotion to their king. And there's a lot of them that we could find. You see, under the law and under grace, there is absolutely no moral difference between the life under the law and under grace. It's the exact same moral code applied from the beginning of time and will apply to the end of time. God's standard of morality is absolutely unchanged. And what the children of Israel had under the law, well, they had these, the sacrifices were offered to them, were given to them under the law. So that their sins that they had committed might be 
covered, atoned for, until Christ could come. And here's how it occurred to me, this, this makes sense to me, this illustration helps to make sense of it all to me. If someone commits a crime, a serious crime, then they are guilty. The law of the land requires justice to be served. And so, uh, under just sort of a typical scenario, a warrant for their arrest will be issued, or be, and they will, and it will be served at some point. And they, and it does not matter how wonderful a person that is, whether he is a lawyer or a doctor or a simple carpenter or whatever. It does not matter. His status in society does not really matter or shouldn't matter. I'm talking theoretically. I'm not talking about the United States, fallen United States. You understand? I'm not talking about the fallen United States where you can, if you're important enough and a Democrat, you can get by with anything. Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about theoretically, you, uh, whoever you are, you're under the law. And the law has this penalty that must be paid. Now, it could be that you uh, can pay a, a post-bail and, and get out of jail for a while and go back to your normal daily routines, but you are not free. You are under that, that penalty still hangs over your head until at some point that you're going to have to go to trial and face the judge and, your pen, and the penalty for that crime will be executed. It must be executed. It must be paid. And, and so the Old Testament sacrifices, as the Jews would bring their, the animal sacrifice, lay their hands on the head of that animal and, and, and uh, shed its blood and put it on the altar. That's like posting bail. It allowed them to go about their daily routines, their lives and so forth, but they were never really free from their sin until Christ came and paid the penalty in full. That alone set them free from the penalty of their sin. Until that happened, they were only, it was only covered. It was only, it was like posting bail. And that's why the law would, like a schoolmaster would bring them to Christ. And once Christ came and paid that debt, finally, at last, it could be said of them, they are free. There's no longer a requirement. The penalty is paid. That's under the law. Sin always hung over them. It had its demands, had not been met under the law, no matter what they did. It could be, and, and so... Uh, but now, under grace, Christ has come. And the penalty for our sin has been paid. And it no longer hangs over our head. The sentence is finished and accomplished in Christ. And all the trust in Christ now, under grace, are free. And Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 6, or there... <laughs> In Romans chapter 6 is, if you've been 
freed from your crime, do you turn around and go back out and commit the same crime again? Of course not. Of course not. That's not thinkable. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to be free. I don't know how I got, how I got there from here. <clears throat> but anyway, there's many texts in the New Testament that, that tell us about that we are alive now, alive to live and service to God. We live before God. We live in fellowship with God. We have a relationship with the living God, with the true God. That's, that's so critical, so crucial, so beautiful. And God himself has committed himself to us forever. That's what encouraged me so greatly about this passage. They have a confidence. The work that he has begun, he will complete. And then we get into verse 16 and back in our text. They went on to the well. That is, the well that God had spoken of unto Moses when he said, gather the people together and I will give them water. So now they've come to, they come to the well, the well of the promised water. And we might uh, think of this as uh, the promised water that the Lord Jesus promised to the woman at the well in uh, John chapter 4. Living water. Not just any water, but living water, he said. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life, said the Lord Jesus. This is a water, this is a water that's given by God, given by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is within us then springing up. And the, and the analogy or the connection to here is un, unmistakable. Where the children of Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. The singing of the people and the springing up of this water within them. <clears throat> Picture of that glorious Holy Spirit given by the Lord Jesus Christ to all that trust in him. He is within us. How is it going to happen? How is God going to bring us through? How can we have confidence that the wars of the Lord will be successful in bringing us all the way through? Well, this is the, this is key. Gather together unto me and the water I will give. God will give it. Now notice that it was gather the people together, says the Lord and I will give them water. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the gathered assembly. And the gathered assembly seems like they just couldn't hardly help. It was like a spontaneous song broke out as they were gathered together around this well.
Yes, we all individually as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit, but there is a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which seems to me, I think you could find it and argue it pretty carefully through the New Testament, seems to me is manifest, is, is evidented in the gathered assembly of the believers. They are gathered together. And then there's something else to note about this, that the princes and the nobles, they digged it. They dug the well with their staves, with the, with the staff in their hand, they dug the well. How, it's not a, that must have been a, quite an operation to dig a well with a stick. So obviously he's trying to teach us some thoughts here. You know, they couldn't have dug a well with their sticks. But the idea is, the staff, of course, is, a, is the uh, shepherd's tool for guidance, for leading the flock. It's a shepherd's tool. And the, these nobles and princes, as they dig this well, they were doing it by the direction of the lawgiver. And so we have this, a lot of direct, a lot of guidance going on here. The word of God is guiding the leadership as they guide and direct the flock. And what they are doing is facilitating the springing up of this water for the people. Leadership in the assembly is intended to facilitate the springing up of the Spirit of God. And sometimes us old duffers, we try to quench the Spirit, don't we? We don't, we don't want too much enthusiasm amongst the young. Well, maybe this kind of, this beautiful this beautiful picture here, the elders, the, the, the princes, the nobles, they're never more noble than when they are facilitating the moving and working of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the gathered people. What a blessed time that is. And the songs that emanate. Uh, well, as soon as the people drink of the well and they start to move on, the chapter goes, and this I didn't get to last time, so finally got out of my introduction. As soon as the people drank of the well that sprang up, barely had they finished the last note of their happy song, and they have to face an enemy. And it's not just any old enemy, it's Sion, king of the Amorites, of Heshbon. His name is found 33 times in the Old Testament, so this is no small deal. This is a big deal. I didn't realize it was that important, but over and over and over he has mentioned Sion, king of the Amorites, and uh, he's, he's famous. He was a famous uh, king in those days. He was famous for taking Heshbon out of the hand of the Moabites. He made it a, an Amorite fortress, apparently, according to the little parable that, or uh, the, uh, the proverb that is uh, recorded here. They spoke about it in Proverbs. They said, come to Heshbon and look at what Sihon has done. And they speak of his, the flame that's come, came out and devoured the Moabite and all of this sort of thing. Which, by the way, becomes prophetic in Jeremiah chapter 48, but that we won't go into. 
He's famous for taking it, and he and so what does this famous enemy represent? The people of God face enemies in the world, and when they're described for us in the Word of God, they're intended to teach us something that we should expect in our experience. What does it represent? The Amorite, an Amorite is a, well, his name could mean Highlander, or uh, probably more likely it means a talker. And so I think, well, why not put them together? Big talker, high talk, big, high-sounding talker. And Amorite was a big talker. Blah, 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 boy, he got things to say. Heshbon, Heshbon is important. Uh, his, that name means to reason. So here is a big talker that loves to argue, sounds like to me. Lots of talk, lots of argument, lots of reason. Sihon means to sweep away. And I think, well, it all fits together so perfectly. I think we have here the, the uh, wisdom of this world doesn't have any truth to tell, tell you, but it sweeps away whatever truth there is. A lot of talk, a lot of big ideas, nothing real of substance, and uh, taking away its point and purpose is to tear down and sweep away Eliminate the truth of God, the wisdom of this world. And the children of Israel say to him, let, let us pass through. We just want to pass through. We're not going to bug you. We just, we'll buy food and water. We're just going to pass through on our feet. We're not going to do anything to you. But that, uh, that was not going to be good enough for Sihon. He's not uh, somebody that he can't agree to disagree can't just agree to disagree with you. We got different opinions. You do, you go your way. I'll stay with. No, it's not like that. He's got to attack. He's got to. He's got to attack the people of God. He's got to cast down the truth. This is this is so typical of the wisdom of this world that it's, it fits too well. And in fact, it's uh, it's going to. It's going to continue to play itself out in the history of mankind until the great. King, evil king of the last days. And one of his marks, as we read in Daniel a couple of times, he'll cast down truth to the ground. That's his, that's his goal, that's his passion, is to tear down the truth of God, destroy it, trample it under feet. Well, this is a formidable enemy by all means, but the little proverb about the greatness of Sihon, how he took Heshbon out of the hands of Moabites and made it a great fortress for his own glory, has another verse added to it. Uh, verse 30 is added on to this little proverb. And now we say also, we, the children of Israel, we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished, even unto Debon. We have laid them waste, even unto Nophath, which reached unto... The children of Israel have... Another verse added. His victory um, is, is short-lived, and the Israel, Israel triumphs over him and made a show of him openly. The conqueror is conquered. The captivity is taken captive. The Lord delivered Sion into the hand of Israel. Israel took all her cities and all her possessions for themselves and spoiled them greatly.
The Lord made the wisdom of this world foolishness by the cross of Christ. And that is just one of the mighty victories that is assured to the child of God as they march through the wilderness. Then they face Og, king of Bashan. And it sounds like in this text that Bashan is one city and, and its vassal king is, uh, is there and he wants to uh, try and fight against the children. But it's much bigger than that, actually. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy, uh, you'll find out that uh, there were 60 cities with were walled, 60 walled cities under the rule of Og of Bashan. And they were great walls, fortified cities. There were 60 fortresses, you might say, that they had to fight against. And many, many villages that were unwalled, it says in Deuteronomy, as Moses recounts the story, chapter 2, I think it is. Now, what is, what is Og, king of Bashan? Who does he represent for us? The meaning of Bashan has something to do with shame. It was uh, awkward, but I did get this out of it. It has to do with shame. In the region of Argob, which we don't read in this text, but is in the Deuteronomy text, that's the other part of this, means a lion's den. Og is the last of the giants, by the way. He is noted as the last of the giants of that region. It was a region of giants. And Og is, well, he's kind of the end of it. He, he left a bed behind. And that's what he's noted for. His bed was 14 feet long and 6 feet wide. This guy was enormous. And he liked to go to bed, I guess. He had 60 walled cities, many unwalled cities. I think he represents immorality. That's what I think. Just plain and simple, he is a good representative to me of immorality. And we've all faced that enemy. And what a giant it is. What a monster. But this too is the war of Jehovah. And as such, victory is assured in a company who have sung to the well and receive the water from it. That company, that company people, and oh how important in the battle for, of immorality, how important in the battle against the wisdom of this world, in the battle against immorality, and these great battles that stand against the people, how important is the gathered assembly? How important is the is the connection with brothers and sisters in Christ is what we share together, how we Lift how we encourage one another, how we wash one another's feet, as it actually in this whole thing. Victory is assured. It is the wars of Jehovah. And so, by the time we come to chapter 22 and verse 1, the children of Israel set forward again, and they pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan, across from Jericho. Now they are right at the brink of the land. They made it back, way back at the beginning, in Exodus chapter 15, when they sang the song of the redeemed. They sang about Moab. 
in that song, they mention Moab, and it says there, the mighty men of Moab, trembling will take hold of them. Yeah, and uh, here it is. It's, it's literally fulfilled. As they come to this place in verse 1 of chapter 22, they're on the, on the border of Moab, right up against the Jordan River. Across from them is Jericho, and you know what's going to happen in those days. Here they are. They're waiting to go across. They're waiting for the green light. The green light won't come until Deuteronomy has been all written, of course. Moses has to go up on the Mount Nebo, and the Lord will bury him there in private, a private funeral. That has to happen first. So they're going to sit there at the banks of Jordan and and wait it out, ready to go into the land. They can see it right across the river. Shouldn't be any problem there, right? Chapter 22, 23, 24, detail for us, a spiritual warfare that's going off, going on against them. An enemy, a spiritual enemy, who is waging a war against them that they are not even aware of. And it tells us about how God preserves and protects them while they're sitting there on a bank completely oblivious to the, to the terrible assault that's being waged against them by Balak. Well, that for future time. I honestly don't know what to say about chapter 22. It is such a marvelous chapter. The story of Balaam and his talking donkey. It's a fantastic story, but I, I just don't know where to go with it. But we'll see what happens and see if the Lord can give me some insight that uh, helps me with that chapter. Um, he fights our wars for us. He is our... What a wonderful God we have. What a great salvation. Father, thank you so much for your greatness and your goodness to us. Thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. Victory against great enemies. Famous, famous enemies. The wisdom of this world. I mean, how could we ever stand up against the wisdom of this world? We thank you that in Christ we have complete victory. Thy word is so sure to us. We just thank you for that. Uh, the day is coming when this world's wisdom will be shown for all of its folly and stupidity. And Father, we also recognize this problem of immorality. What a giant, what a monster it is against us. We thank you for the victory that is assured to us in Christ against this terrible enemy. We confess our own inability. We couldn't, I don't think I could ever throw over one of those 60 walled cities that housed the terrible forces that stand against me. 
Lord, I thank you that you are a great commander and chief, and more than that, the, the military force, the victor, the conqueror. They can claim those wonderful truths that we are more than conquerors through Christ who has loved us. Thank you, Father, for this great salvation. And that is for me, even me. And my little life is small and pathetic as it seems to be, is important to you. And you who have begun this good work in me, you cared enough to start the work. You cared enough to call me with the gospel and convict me of my sin and and show me that the Lord Jesus had died for my sins and invite me to come by that glorious gospel out of darkness into light. Oh God, you that have begun that great work in me will perform it all the way. All the way through. Oh, I depend on that now. I think more than ever. And I trust you for it. The finish line it shines brightly before me. I trust you for it. And I thank you again. In Jesus' name.